This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Michael DiMercurio, best-selling author, veteran of the U.S. Navy submarine force, commentator and humorist who has also had a near-death experience during a Navy diving examination, which we're going to learn about today. Michael, thank you so much for being our guest and welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Jeff. Thank you. All right, Mike, if you don't mind, let's just start on the day that your NDE happened and go from there. Sure. I guess just a, a, a little short background. This was a, a Navy scuba school. Uh, the reason I went there is that submarines need divers to uh, dive the hole and take a look for bombs or mines or, uh, you know, troubling things before we uh, leave port. So, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a, um, you know, just a, a lark to do that, but we knew it would be, uh, you know, useful for the submarine when when I reported there a couple months later. I went there with my roommate. Um, so uh, this school featured a lot of, uh, you know, physical training PT, uh, a lot of tests. It, it, it was one of those military schools where it almost seems like they want you to flunk out. Uh, you know, fully half of the people who start there don't finish. Uh, as an example, one of the uh, tests that they do they make you fill up a scuba mask and then backstroke in a pool for an hour and the water goes back down your nose, no matter what happens. And for a lot of people, their central nervous system just, you know, completely panics when that happens. And, and so if you left the pool or stopped backstroking, you flunked. So we flunked a lot of people that day. Um, the final test they had was in a 10 meter tank, a little over 30 feet deep. Um, and they would uh, have instructors who would be waiting in this pool, swimming around, uh, and their job was to punch people and slap people and sabotage people. And, and the whole reason for that was to stress the student. Uh, as one dive instructor said, stressing the, the diver is important because you, you have to realize that this is not a pleasure dive, that bad things can happen underwater. And he described a... Uh, an incident where he was diving at the bottom of the Thames River outside New London, Connecticut, that they were looking for something. And he swam, uh, you know, down the river looking for things. And all of a sudden he hit a metal wall and he thought, well, that's kind of strange. I'll just swim up and over this, whatever this metal device is. And as he swam up, he hit another metal wall. So he thought, well, that's strange. So we went left, he hit a metal wall. He went right, he hit a metal wall. He went back the way he came and he hit a metal wall. And the average diver would panic during this and probably drown. What had happened was without touching the edges of an opening, he managed to swim into a dumpster that had been discarded at the bottom of the river. And he had to find the opening again. But it's like so startling what, what happened to the guy that, you know, having divers who can manage to get through this stress is important. So in this test, 
you would throw all your equipment broken down into the bottom of the pool and then jump in after it, take a big breath and go down there and, and valve in your regulator and get all the water out of it. Um, modern scuba regulators are built with a purge mechanism where if you push a button, it gets all the water out and fills it up with air so you can breathe. Um, you know, so when we tossed in our regulators, if they caught you pressing that purge button, you immediately flunked. So four weeks of this class would go to waste. So nobody was going to press that purge button. We we're just going to use our lungs to evacuate all the water out of the regulator and, and, you know, get it ready so that we could get the rest of our equipment on, weight belt, fins, scuba mask. And meanwhile, all the instructors are swimming around and slapping people and taking your mask off or shutting your air valve or whatever. So for every student down there, um, there was, you know, for every two students, there was one dive instructor. So it was pretty crowded at that in that pool. Uh, there were probably 10 of us left in the class by that time. I think we started with maybe 30. Um, so as we went through this and I, I put my regulator onto my tanks and I, I put the regulator in my mouth, by the time I got that done, you know, with fighting off instructors who were, you know, slapping me and hitting me and, you know, turning off my valve when I was turning it on, uh, I'd probably been under about two minutes and I was just completely out of air. Uh, so I had blown all the water out of my regulator. It should have worked just fine. It, it, you know, in practice sessions, it, it tended to be okay. Uh, but I think I got a defective regulator. And when I, you know, completely out of, out of air, just took in this big whooshing breath, and I just completely flooded my lungs with water. It was just, you know, I, I didn't even have the ability to stop this. It just, all this cascade of water went into my lungs and it affected my consciousness immediately. It's sort of like the upper functions of my brain kind of switched off very quickly. And I, I just had sort of the reptilian part of the brain. I was, I was convulsing and jerking and, and, you know, every limb was moving. Uh, my dive buddy was a Marine Corps swim instructor. So he was putting his regulator into my mouth and trying to get me to cough up the water and stop panicking, but I couldn't, I was just thrashing around. Um, in this test, if your head comes out of the water, you flunk. So my dive instructor is a point of, of principle and a point of pride. He was not going to let my head come above the surface. So with, with all my air gone and with this big, you know, lung full of water, um, I, I sort of from a distance watched myself flopping and flailing and, and my vision started to tunnel out until the edges of my vision were black. And then that vision sort of, you know, got smaller and smaller until maybe it was the size of an apple and then it got to the size of a dime and then it was just a point of light and then just winked out like an old fashioned TV going off and everything was black for a moment. And then there was light. And I'm swimming in a, in a very uh, well-illuminated area, and I'm looking at uh, my dive buddy and myself from about 10 feet away. Um, and my dive buddy is frantically trying to get me to cough out this water. He's, he's trying to compress my lungs almost like an underwater CPR. And meanwhile, all the dive instructors had stopped paying attention to anybody else and were all gathered around me. 
Uh, to give you an idea about this test, they have not one but two ambulances fully staffed waiting up on the deck to uh, revive anybody who drowns. Apparently, drowning during this exercise is fairly common. Uh, they even had a name for it. They would call it seeing God. So the, uh, uh, you know, the dive instructors on a routine basis, nobody was panicked. They were just trying to get me away from my dive buddy. But my dive buddy was this very strong Marine, and he just kept waving them off and telling them everything was going to be okay. And meanwhile, I'm just watching this with this, you know, new sense of calm and this feeling that I had all this wisdom. It's very hard to describe, but it's sort of like when you jump into the tank as a normal human being, you've got 10 worries on in your mind how are you going to pay your bills you know what's the next assignment that's coming up am i going to am i going to pass this test um you know what are my parents doing um you know worrying about reporting to the the next assignment on the submarine you know are things going to go okay and and then as this was happening i realized that all those earthly worries and cares they're all gone um, there was no worry at all. I, I know some people experience euphoria. That didn't happen to me. I was not really euphoric, but I was just very calm. And the fact that I didn't have any worries anymore uh, was a distinctly pleasing feeling. Uh, but the other thing was I just had this depth of understanding that I'd never felt before. It was kind of like uh, being a chess master explaining chess to a child. You just, you know so much suddenly that the, 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 I kept describing it as the whole universe suddenly made sense to me. You know, all the mysteries that we normally proceed with, you know, why do we, why do we live for so short a time and then die? Things like that um, just seemed to make sense. I had the answers. I had a thousand answers in my head and none of them were crowding each other out. It was, it was just all very normal seeming. Um, so I'm sitting there watching myself drown or watching my body drown. And at first it was very interesting. It's kind of fascinating to watch yourself die. Uh, but after a while I was sort of losing interest and I guess I would describe dying as it's, it's kind of like leaving a, uh, an airline seat. You know, you, you look around to make sure you didn't leave your phone or your book. Uh, you've got your passport. And then you, you get up, you grab your stuff, you take maybe one last look at it, and then you leave. And you never really think about that airline seat again. Uh, or checking out of a hotel. Very similar process. I mean, you look around, you remember what happened in that hotel room. Maybe you, you pack your bags, make sure you didn't leave anything. You give it one last glance, and then you leave, and it's just not there anymore. Uh, I felt like that. I had no sentiment or sentimentality about my body, about about the life that I'd led. I mean, it was it was it was just there. It was a bunch of facts. Uh, it, I really didn't have any emotions about it. Uh, so I was just sort of in this mood of walking away from it. Um, but I turned around, or I felt compelled to turn around, or something turned me around, and I'm looking away from my body. And what I'm seeing is a big black dot growing from maybe the size of an apple until it was maybe 35 feet in diameter. And it was sort of funnel shaped. I guess you could describe it as the horn of plenty, I guess. And 
even though it was black, uh, there was illumination inside of the maw of this tunnel. And it was as if the sides of the tunnel were made of thunderclouds. If you've ever flown in an airplane above a thunderstorm and you see that black cloud kind of lighting up from the inside from lightning, uh, it was sort of the same effect. So in, in a random pattern, all these sort of interior clouds on the walls were lighting up uh, on and off with like their interior lightning and sort of giving a, a sort of weak glow to the inside of the tunnel. And I felt myself moving. It was almost like the tunnel was moving toward me and I was stationary. But I turned around again to look back at my body and it was moving away from me as well as the tank. And then I was inside this tunnel and it was just moving with me feeling stationary and the tunnel walls moving past me. And it was maybe uh, 30 miles an hour is what it felt like as I watched these clouds go by. And it just seemed like I was in this tunnel for a very long time. Uh, it felt like about an hour. Um, and, and then, it, you know, it, I'd gotten so far into this tunnel that where I'd started from was no longer visible. That, that little dot of light where the, where the pool had been had shrunken to the point of a dot, and then it had faded out, and there was just a tunnel. And at one point, I just stopped moving, and I was just floating there, and I had the sensation that I was waiting for something, um, something that seemed important. And then I just had the dimmest uh, realization at first that I could, I could hear people talking. Um, and it wasn't really talking like language. It wasn't words. Uh, it was not uh, sentences. It was more thoughts, uh, images, uh, intentions. Uh, you know, when people talk about telepathy, this is, this is what it felt like. Um, what I thought was interesting was there were probably half a dozen or seven individual beings. Uh, each one had an individuality that, that, that came through these tunnel walls to me. They were on the other side of the tunnel wall. Um, there was one who seemed to be in charge, sort of a dominating spirit who had this, you know, deeper inflection or voice, as you could say, which it, it came off as a very male uh, spirit uh, speaking to a group of maybe half a dozen of these more female, more caring, more nurturing spirits. So to my consciousness, they seemed female. Um, and the male spirit was not very nurturing and was not harsh, but very demanding, almost like, you know, an earthly father would be, you know, get in there and make me proud, son, sort of attitude. And they were, they were not talking to me, they were speaking to each other, but they were sort of watching me, I guess I could say. And um, it took a while to get their thoughts so that they translated themselves into my mind. But what I what I gathered was that the female spirits were saying that they needed to let me go all the way to the end of the tunnel to the afterlife because the earthly life that had been uh, chosen for me or that, that, I don't know, maybe I chose it or that was, that was unfolding uh, was defective and that it was way too painful and would be crushing and, and uh, it would destroy me and that I didn't have the capability to stand up to that. And we needed to reset the counter and start over. Uh, the male spirit was saying that that was not that was not true. He disagreed, 
uh, that I needed to find the courage that had been given to me into this life. And I needed to proceed on with my life and, and do all the things that I was supposed to do in this life. And the females kept arguing, no, that's, that's going to destroy him. You know, he's, he's not going to be able to survive all that. And then there was a projection on the wall of the tunnel where the, this, you know, male spirit who's in charge of this whole thing uh, projected a view, sort of a three-dimensional movie of, of the things that were going to happen in my life if I were to go back to Earth and finish things. And it was, uh, I, I remember some emotions I had watching this, but I uh, immediately after this whole incident ended, I had no memory of, of what had transpired there. I, I could not tell you what this movie seemed like or looked like or what what it felt like experiencing it other than uh, maybe a little bit of wonder um uh at the end of that presentation um the female spirits all concurred that it it made more sense to send me back to my life that it, it there was a lot of meaning here even though there was a lot of pain but that i had a lot of things to accomplish and so then the tunnel walls started moving back, uh, sending me in the direction that I'd entered. Uh, this time it was moving dizzyingly fast. I mean, it was like supersonic. And even though it took me an hour to get where I was, it probably took me about two seconds to emerge back into the pool. And I saw my body again from maybe 10 feet away for two or three seconds. And then I slammed into it so hard that I opened my eyes and started coughing. And I, I looked at my dive buddy, and he was just absolutely dark purple from his regulator being in my mouth, trying to give me his air. And uh, he was surprised that I, you know, came back. And he was still fighting off all these instructors who were trying to get me to the surface, to the ambulance. So I took his regulator out of my mouth, and I put it in his. And, uh, you know, somehow I managed to get this this broken regulator purged out with what what I had in my lungs. I think I had to buddy breathe with him using his regulator a couple times to be able to get that done. Um, but eventually the test ended. Uh, then they got everybody out of the pool and they made me stand at the ambulances while the corpsman, the medics checked me out and they were shining flashlights in my eyes and, you know, checking my pulse and blood pressure and everything else. Uh, and one of the medics asked me, you know, you know, what was my experience? Did you see God? Did you go to the other side? And I told him the experience and, and he actually found it a little bit frightening. He'd never heard of anybody uh, in their dive sessions who drowned having an experience like that. Everybody apparently went all the way to the other side and there were meadows and mountains and flowers, and, you know, uh, a spirit in a white cape or whatever. And mine stopping halfway while they tried to figure out what to do with me, he found that very frightening. And he, he literally said to me, uh, you know, Mr. DiMercurio, uh, you need to change something in your life. That, that doesn't sound very good. Um, so that was sort of the end of it. I passed the course and went on to the submarine force. And I kept wondering if, if things would be different for me after that experience. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your experience. They were talking to you about that so you had this difficult life and it may destroy you. After this had all happened, did you kind of re-examine your life and see what had been going on that you know made them talk about this and give this idea that you would be destroyed or you 
we're living in too much pain? You know, sometimes I wonder if they'd never said anything, would I have had the amount of pain I had? Uh, because one of the things that, that happened to me um, that, that changed a little bit was a very limited clairvoyance, um, not about events, but, but, you know, more in the, in the, I guess you'd call it the mind reading uh, category. Uh, it only worked on women. It only worked on people I had a connection to. Um, and it, it led me into two marriages that, that ended very badly. And I, I sometimes wonder whether those would have happened had I not had this experience or if that uh, sort of mind reading ability, uh, if I hadn't had that, would I really have stumbled into these, into these marriages the way it was? And I, and I think that ability probably doomed those relationships because at the, at the slightest unhappiness of one of my wives, I picked up on that and it amplified and things would get worse and worse and worse. And, and uh, those divorces were so harsh and so bitter and so awful that, uh, you know, they induce suicidal ideation at the end of each one of them. So, yeah, that was that was a big part of it. Um, a lot of that pain concerns, you know, uh, connection to children and, and trying to maintain a relationship to children in, in spite of a, a furious ex-wife uh, that a lot of men, you know, in that position of experience. So it's really nothing unique, I don't think. Um, I think one of my uh, disappointments in life was, although I'd gone to the Naval Academy, I'd been an engineer, and I was I was very uh, enthusiastic about being a submariner. Uh, I was terrible at. It. Um, you know, I, I'd really wanted to go on and command a submarine and and be a Navy admiral and and make an impact on the world. And uh, I <laughs> I I'm was not a political creature at the time. I tended to speak my mind and uh, I was not going to be able to climb that ladder. So um, it, it, you know, my Navy career was not distinguished. Uh, I, you know, I did have a good tour of duty on the Cold War submarine Hammerhead and we did a lot of stuff that I can't even talk about today. That was some very thrilling things that I, I did have a good contribution to, but in terms of a Navy career, that was not going to happen for me. So part of my disappointment, uh, I, I fed into starting to write novels about it. And that's kind of what got me into writing in the first place. Do you think that some of the lessons of this life were more in social nature and relationship nature instead of bravery and fighting battles? I do. And, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there uh, where, you know, in my, in my career after that, I was, I was very more the mission focused person than the people focused person. And uh, I, I came to a time in my life when I was uh, unemployed and I, I was starting to think that I was unemployable. Uh, and then I was going to starve to death. Um, and one of, one, of my, uh, one of my friends in the industry hired me into a, uh, a job that was 100% people skills. And I thought to myself, I'm going to get fired after the first month. And, <laughs> and again, I'm going to starve to death. Uh, it was very strange because, you know, when, I, when, when my mission was to have relationships, um, then my mission-focused personality grew up. So I think that that made me more of a relationship-focused person. And it, it, it 
changed my entire personality. Uh, it was a big building block in who I am and who, you know, what my soul is. So I think that was really the, the core of my life experience was, was making that change. While wearing your engineering hat and you think about your NDE, do you think it was more real than this 3D world that we live in now? Yeah, I, I really do. I, I remember um, the, the first time people started talking seriously about this world being a simulation, a digital simulation. A lot of these ideas matured as we developed um, our understanding of quantum mechanics, as we have developed uh, computer models and simulations ourselves of worlds. Uh, I think just about everybody is familiar with Elon Musk's statement that he thinks there's a high probability that this life we're living in is a simulation. Um, and whether or not you have any, any belief in that or you consider it credible or not credible, uh, the fact is that there's a mathematical model that this could be the case. Um, and in fact, that, that led me to, to sort of connect with what I saw from my NDE was that when I was in the tunnel and listening to these spirits, they weren't really talking about the earthly life and the afterlife. They were talking about the real world, which was their afterlife. And, and this world, And when they, when they thought about this existence, uh, they had sort of this attitude like it, it was not very real. It was almost like it was a contest or a game. So... When people 20 years later, 30 years later, started talking about the simulation theory, this resonated with me because that's kind of what I picked up from those guardian spirits. And I'm glad you you called them guardian spirits because I was going to ask you, you know, who do you think those spirits were? Well, they seemed uh, in personality very human. So, you know, I, I, I don't think we're talking about angels or gods. I think we're, we're talking about uh, people with personalities that, that seem very human like us, maybe more evolved, uh, maybe more, you know, more wise, if you will, that, that whole feeling I got when I, when I, you know, moved away from my body and felt this wisdom come into me. They, they had that, that real breadth of wisdom uh, that, you know, when we talk to the average person here, uh, it, it's somewhat absent. But um, but they did not seem godlike. They seemed very human. Um, whether those were, you know, some people talk about a soul circle or they talk about, you know, your friends from the other side or grandparents or what have you. Um, if you do any research into reincarnation, uh, that kind of folds into this. You, you run into the idea of this concept of a soul circle where individual entities will will incarnate multiple times together. Maybe that one, you know, person that's special to you is a friend in this life and was your father in a past life. And you were that person's mother in a life before that where, uh, you know, you, you interact with each other. Uh, one of the other ideas is that people who, in this life, you might consider your nemesis or your bitter enemy. You know, think of an ex-wife or somebody suing you in a lawsuit. That could actually be somebody in your soul circle who's very important to your development. So uh, some of these ideas resonate. We don't know if they're true or not or, or whether they're just hypotheses, but 
Um, some of them have a ring of truth, especially if you've been through what I've been through. Do you think that we come here time and time again as a learning experience or playing a game? Well, I, I do think there's a, a learning experience involved. I can't really say that that's the core purpose. Um, and I think there is a purpose and multiple purposes, but I don't think that we really have the capability to know what those are. And we may not know until we're on the other side. Um, the, the whole, you know, soul school is a very popular idea with a lot of people, but I'm not sure I buy it. Um, it just seems like there's a lot of ways to learn, and this is a very tough way to learn. Um, and, you know, as far as the metaphysical is concerned, if the afterlife is as powerful a place as people believe it to be, why would you need to incarnate into quarks and neutrons and protons and electrons in, in this universe to be able to learn something? Yeah, you learn something by going to a library. Um, but there is something apparently special about this existence. I don't know what it is, but it's something real that I think we need to experience. So there's meaning here. Um, and I kind of keep it at that. I keep my mind open to what is the purpose. But so far, I haven't really figured that out. Are you a religious person or were you before this experience? Before this experience, I was very religious, um, very much so. Uh, afterwards, really not at all. Um, I just felt like it, if my religion were really something um, as real as I thought it would be, that on the other side, I would experience some elements of that. And I know a lot of people in NDEs have encountered things that, that coincide with their religious beliefs, but it, it didn't happen for me. And it led me to a different philosophy. So, um, and I guess that philosophy is somewhat simple. I, I think that, you know, this is an incarnation in the physical universe, but I don't think that life ends at death. I think it, I think the major part of our existence is probably on the other side or in that cloud, if you will, the afterlife. Um, there's some meaning here and there's a purpose and there's a mission. Um, I don't know that we know what that is. Um, and I, I do think we probably incarnate multiple times. I don't know how many I, I experimented with the idea once, um, just trying to, uh, see if, if hypnotic regression, uh, into a past life makes any sense. And, uh, uh to this day, I'm not really sure. If, if, uh, if, if what I experienced was credible, but it, it seemed to be interesting. Going back to that other place being hyper real compared to here, do you think it's like in this existence we have a filter on, or can you describe the difference between the two? I guess I would, I would describe it as if you're, uh, if you're a video game uh, fan, uh, and you spend six hours a day playing a video game, um, you can get convinced uh, of how real the virtual world is there. Uh, you can get so involved in it, uh, even emotionally involved in it, that it's a very real part of your life. Um, I, I, don't, I don't do any of that. 
for whatever reason, I, I seem to have whatever part of the brain likes doing that is sort of short-circuited in me. But uh, I know a lot of people who do. Um, and it feels very real. And I, I think that when those people turn the video game off and they get up from the couch and they walk around their house or they go to the grocery store or they walk outside and look at the sunshine and perceive the real world, that's kind of a, a metaphor as to what this real world slash afterlife is like compared to our existence here. Uh, it's almost like our existence here is missing a few dimensions and it's abbreviated and it's truncated and it's a model. Uh, and that only, only part of who we are shows up here. Um, maybe the parts of us that need work or development. And that uh, at, the, at the point of death, we're reunited with the rest of our spirit. Uh, some people call that a higher self. Um, and, and, and that that's uh, the explanation for why this life is a lot different. Um, the, the people who believe in that simulation theory kind of see things similar here without there being sort of this metaphysical afterlife. Maybe for them, that real world is wherever the computer program is living. It's fascinating what you just said about how we are here and we're kind of abbreviated. And it just made me think that maybe instead of calling it the higher self, we should call it the complete self. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. That's a, that's a, that's a good concept. Higher self almost makes it sound religious or uh, disconnects it from who we are, but the complete self does more fold into that idea that, that only part of our, our identity is here and the rest of us is, is waiting for that reunification. Um, <clears throat> in, in reading about this, um, some people are uh, uh, asked the question, is it possible to sort of be in two places at once? Can you incarnate twice in the same time frame, you know, bringing different parts of your complete self here. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting question. I have no idea what the answer is, but it leads to some interesting possibilities. Uh, you know, for example, your child may be you. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to that. I've talked on that with guests before, and that is amazing. Like imagine meeting somebody that is also you. I think they may even call that twin flames. Yeah, very much so. I, I, I do, I have experienced multiple times, uh, maybe only a dozen, but, you know, much more than four or five, uh, meeting somebody who I know immediately, even though I've never met them before. Um, and you become fast friends and you have a hundred things to talk about and and even in your first conversation, it feels like you're catching up with that person. And I, I, I describe that as, you know, maybe you've met somebody who's in that soul circle uh, mm -hmm. of people you know. And, you know, you're immediately having some kind of a shorthand with them. And I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of those people who've been in my life, you know, since we met, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but I don't know if you know of Dolores Cannon. But she talks about there are people here on the earth that are like bots. It's like a bot in a video game, like soulless people here. 
the NPC theory, the non-play, non-playing character right. of the uh, simulation fans. Right. She said, don't even try to figure out who they are because you can't. Well, I think we've all run into people who seem to us to be somewhat soulless or one-dimensional, um, who, you know, really don't have a character. I mean, as a, as a writer, you know, we're all trained to come up with a character arc. You, you know, you explain who a character is and then things happen to the character and it he evolves and changes. And at, at the end of that character arc, he's a different person, you know, or, or an evolved person, or he's, you know, his personality's sort of been enhanced or changed. But I've met people who are the same today that they were 10 years ago. And uh, you just can't have a discussion with them. I don't, I don't know if you remember when the uh, miniseries Roots came out. Yeah. And back then people were talking about, you know, find your grandparents and try to get a, a, a you know, a, an oral history from your grandparents and ask them about how was life back when they were alive and, and what was a typical day like and, and you know, educate yourself by talking to these folks. And I, and I remembered I visited with my, uh, my wife's grandmother who was in the hospital um, and she was very aware and very awake. It was, it was, she was in for more for physical problems. She went on to live, I don't know, another five years, but I tried to conduct that kind of interview with her. She just seemed to be a two dimensional character. I mean, she'd wake up, she'd eat and sleep, make meals, make the bed, do the laundry, do the grocery shopping, go to sleeping. I mean, there's just no consciousness there. So, yeah, I think those exist. I was thinking, I think I've seen it in the comments below, and I'll probably see it again, that someone's going to say, I think my ex-spouse was one of those characters. Well, you know, th- there are there are people who uh, believe in walk-ins and walk-outs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I ascribe to that belief, but it, it is tempting to to read up on the concept of a walk-in where, you know, you start your life with with one soul, this animal part of you, the flesh, and then that soul leaves and another one comes in and takes over. And that can, that can maybe explain some discontinuity of personality of somebody. Um, but I think if there are walk-ins, there are certainly the capability of walk-outs where, mm-hmm. you know, you're involved with somebody and, and they're wonderful. And then one day you wake up and they're a different person and you know, marriage falls apart because of it. so there's a lot to consider there um, as a scientist and an empiricist. I don't know how you'd even begin to collect data on something like that and come up with a scientific conclusion. All it can be is speculation, but it is interesting to think about. Sometimes we talk about that people pre-plan these whole lives and or planned exit points, which some of these could be their NDEs if they want to leave or not. Have you considered that? You know, I was, uh, at, at that motorcycle uh, maintenance session I was at the other day, I found myself sitting next to a, uh, a guy who's maybe 10 or 15 years older than me. And uh, he described how um, his, his oldest son had died at the age of 18. And he was still very, very much upset about it. This had happened, I don't know, 20 years ago. Uh, it was still very much part of his... That was the first thing he thought about when he woke up, and it was the last thing he thought about when he went to sleep. It was a very big part of his life. And he was somewhat tortured by the fact that as a farmer, he uh, 
you know, was asked by this, this kid to play some one-on-one basketball one night and the farmer, you know, my companion here in the waiting room uh, was just too tired that day, gotten up at 2.30 in the morning and had been working on the farm and it was sunset and it was getting dark and he just wanted to go to bed. And he told the boy no. And the next morning is when the kid died. And he was just really upset about having told that child, no, I, I can't play basketball with you. And I tried to talk him out of that. And, and we ended up, you know, coming to a conclusion that, that even a short life can have tremendous meaning. And I told him, hey, he was only 18 when he died, but I know you know this individual had tremendous impact on your life and had tremendous meaning to you. So meaning is, has, you know, nothing to do with the length of life. It's just what happens during that life. With a background of engineering, what is your opinion on what is consciousness? Well, I'm skeptical that uh, what we consider consciousness is really a physical phenomenon in the brain. Um, now, certain experiments can can lead you to believe that that what is really happening physically uh, is consciousness. You know, for example, a, a brain injury can change your personality. So does that mean your consciousness resides within the flesh of, of you know, the three pounds inside your skull? Um, you know, a, a electrotherapy where they, you know, shock you with uh, a high voltage. I had a, uh, a friend whose mom had that and twice, and each time it removed about five years of memories from her life. So... Uh, she thought, kept thinking that she was 10 years younger than she actually was. So that's a physical thing. So does that mean that consciousness is here? Um, but the argument against it is all these NDEs where people can tell you what, what the um, tattoo on the back of the neck of the nurse was who was uh, assisting and trying to resuscitate you um, while you were unconscious. And that argues for your consciousness not being contained within your skull. Um, my personal belief is it's probably one of those duality of nature things where it's both at the same time. So uh, we can't really do a lot of experiments or, or, or make a definitive case. Uh, and, and this is just an area where there's a lot of speculation. But now that we know more about quantum physics and uh, computation, and we've developed our own models, we, we see that, you know, just like in a video game, the person controlling uh, the, the avatar is in a different universe from that actual avatar's experience. And a lot of scientists are starting to believe that that is what's happening with consciousness. Um, if there are a way to, to conclude that experimentally, I haven't heard of them. I've been speaking with some of my guests, and it seems like the newer theory is that now the body is a manifestation of the consciousness, just like the flame is the manifestation of striking the match. I think that's a that's a that's a good notion. Um, I believe that our our physical appearance probably is communicating something about uh, our consciousness. I don't think that they're disconnected. I, I think there's you know, there might be a reason why 
somebody who's limping is limping and that it may tie back to some deeper meaning uh, beyond just having had a car accident, for example. Um, but this is a very mystical area that, you know, as, as, a, as an engineer and a scientist, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of in that area where we're just guessing. But I, I do think that there's something to it. I agree with you. And I also think maybe that is what contributes to the placebo effect and or how people just have these miraculous healings where, you know, maybe something changes within your consciousness now that changes how it projects your body and now you're healed. The thing about healing that I find interesting is, and we keep coming back to, to quantum mechanics, is that um, the nature of matter is uh, very flimsy compared to what we thought it was a hundred years ago when we had, you know, in, in the in, in the early part of the uh, 1900s discovered atoms and molecules, and we almost had a Newtonian, you know, clockwork nature of what what made matter and and how energy flowed um, and how heat was transferred. And today, uh, that that whole idea of what what matter is made of uh, is completely different. Uh, when you really get down to subatomic particles, they almost more resemble waves like a photon of light than they do something that has mass. I mean, think about the Higgs boson being a subatomic particle that gives other particles mass. We're almost talking about religious concepts when we're talking about subatomic physics. And, and if that's true, that the nature of, of matter is, is so uh, vaporous, is so wispy, that um, it, it, it's almost considered by some to be digital, uh, where uh, if you went really deep into these quarks that make up our subatomic particles, that what you would find is that even deeper, they're just ones and zeros. They're, wow. they're no different than a computer program. Um, probably a lot of ones and a lot of zeros, but it, it, the, 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 the very deep nature of even a photon of light is that it may be just digital information. And if that's the case, that we're really just talking about programming language, then healing could be nothing more than, than eliminating the code that created the tumor in the first place. And if you went into computer code and you deleted three pages of it and sort of welded it back together so that that tumor never existed and then restarted the, the program, you're now in a universe where you're healed. So that information theory, that digital theory of reality sort of supports some of these what would seem otherwise incredible claims. It's amazing. And it almost makes me start thinking about, you know, computers becoming sentient and AI, where that's going oh, exactly. to end up. Well, I think we're starting to, to see that now. The, the Google employee who was suddenly placed on suspension because he claimed that his chatbot had uh, become self-aware. Mm. Uh, I, I think that frightened the Google uh, uh, hierarchy uh, and sort of shook the foundations. Everybody's waiting for uh, Skynet to emerge. Um, <laughs> I don't, I'm hopeful that it's not going to seem like that. But uh, to me, the AI, if, if, if our reality really is digital and our consciousness is software, 
uh, and just information and ideas, then AI eventually will just be a companion entity. Hopefully one that doesn't destroy the universe, but if it's a thousand times smarter than we are, who knows what universe we'll be living in 10 years down the road. Do you think it's possible what Elon Musk is working with, with Neuralink, what I understand, you know, just hooking our brain directly into the internet? I think you'll see a lot of that developed over the next 20 years. Uh, And it'll be to the point that uh, depending on how people adapt to it, you would be able to drive a car with your mind. I mean, it would be, you know, run your computer program just by thinking about it or be connected uh, to the, to the internet mentally. I think about uh, the year 1997 before the internet was really in our houses. You know, it might have been something at work that, you know, we played with during breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1998, the internet came to the house. And ever since then, life has never really been the same to the point that when you have an internet outage, uh, it, it's a catastrophe. It, it's like you're 10% of who you are. If I hold up my smartphone, when, when this can't get a signal, all the things I do on that only 1% of them work, you know, the clock or, or the calendar. Uh, But when it's not connected, it's practically a paperweight. Uh, I think eventually if that neural link works and it it looks pretty favorable that it will, um, you know, the future could be that, you know, if you have a, a, a disconnection from the internet, from your brain, it'll feel kind of like that smartphone that's, that's lost signal. Mm-hmm. You're, you're practically disconnected from all of the mental reality that you'd normally experience. Are you a Star Trek fan? I was a big fan of the original series. Mm-hmm. I never liked the movies and I could not wrap my mind around the next generation or all the spinoffs. Mm, I was going to me, talk- it was always Captain Kirk. Oh, I don't blame you. And I was just going to talk to you about the Borg, but you may make, not be that aware of that villain. I'm a little series. bit aware of the Borg. I think that's a good model for what things may look like right. in the future, except that individuality seems to be a thing and people prize their individuality. Uh, I don't see us giving that up. So I still think of people holding on to their individual identities, uh, even in that matrix. It's interesting to think about that if we get that developed where we understand, like you were saying earlier, that our bodies are just computer code, that we get to the ability where at will we can just be like a shapeshifter and start changing our body. Well, I think if, if you know, we, we ever encounter a, uh, an, an alien, you know, space alien personality, we might be running into somebody who's mastered exactly that um you know i'm i'm uh, a big fan of of seeing some of these these ufo phenomena where the laws of physics seem to be being broken mm-hmm. uh where something will change direction immediately and zoom off um i i think if if our universe is digital you're seeing that that you know that was just the manifestation of of code and for all we know, uh, you know, that could be something sort of like uh, an entity deciding to, you know, shapeshift or change its location 
instead of being here, it's going to instantaneously be over there. Uh, you could do that in a computer game, but you can't do it in real life yet. Yeah, it's fascinating that you say that. I recently saw an interview with um, Dr. Michio Kaku, uh, the physicist. I'm not sure if you're aware of who he is, but they were talking. I think you're you're speaking of. Yeah. And they were talking about the UFOs, and he said that they are traveling somewhere between Mach 8 and Mach 25. And he said at that speed, you would just crush your bones. And I never even thought about this, but you're not hearing sonic booms either. So it makes a lot of sense what you're saying about the computer code and just, you know, things are changing well, almost, within the matrix here. Well, exactly. It's almost as if it's, uh, it's, it's hacking uh, a code. So that an object is here in our physical universe, but it gets hacked to stop existing here, and now it exists here. But to our eyes, it looked like it traveled, you know, faster than the speed of light from left to right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that again supports the idea of you know what is this reality? Is it digital? Um, I I think about Stephen Hawking's statement a lot that if we meet space aliens, we won't be meeting the biological entities. We'll be meeting their AI Mm. that killed them and then went out into space. I had Dr. Eben Alexander on. I don't know if you're aware of him, but he's the Harvard neurosurgeon who had an NDE. And he said he read somebody else's research, another brain surgeon. And According to him and that brain surgeon, you can cut out any part of the brain and you will not lose long-term memory. You will lose the ability to convert short-term memory into long-term memory, but those long-term memories are still there and he calls it being stored in the quantum hologram, which, you know, we, maybe it's stored in the complete self or whatever. Uh, I think that's that's very interesting and it's, it's very true. I, I remember... Um, when my daughter was going uh, through elementary school, she had some, some you know, minor dyslexia and, and you know, minor learning disability that that we all got over by uh, putting her it's in some of these hours. by putting her in some of these special classes where they had more innovative techniques and in, in teaching, and and some of these people talked about we are literally rewiring her brain to process information differently than most people process it and by the time we're done doing that she'll be completely okay and completely normal and and that turned out to be true Mm. um and i always thought about that rewiring of the brain that sounds very much like your neuroscientist friend is sort of on to something there um i'm particularly interested in the short-term memory uh issue because of the impact of age on short-term memory uh, we may be seeing a similar phenomenon with maybe the brain is degrading physically. That's um, probably constantly rewiring itself to be able to, to, you know, continue on with the personality, but, but short-term memories can be affected. Yeah. Um, uh, I think Alzheimer's research is, and, and dementia research is also trying to feed into this to figure out how to fix that. And, you know, maybe in 20 years we'll have better results than we have today. Yeah. Well, I think there's just maybe limitation of matter. I mean, if you come here to play this game, bodies only last so long unless we can figure out how to hack them and 
and regrow the body. As far as I understand it, aging is just the body's ability to repair itself gets slower and slower and slower where it finally just loses. So maybe we can hack that component. Know, maybe the bodies will keep going forever. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have a little bit different philosophy of age. Uh, the physical changes um, seem to have some meaning beyond degradation. Um, and the mental changes seem to have some meaning beyond just pure development. Um, it's, it's almost as if the experience of being human is not fully realized until you've gone through an entire cycle. Um, there were times when I thought that, that uh, I had never really, you know, in any incarnation been old. I always felt like I was, uh, you've heard people talk about their, an old soul. I always felt like a young soul. I felt like I'd never really experienced much in the uh, old age category. And, and now I am. Um, and I, I, I'm experiencing it much differently than I thought I would. I thought it would just be living with degradation but if anything it almost feels like there's enhancements that happen beyond just the ability to uh, learn from experiences or from reading what have you it's it's an expansion of consciousness that occurs without um, volition and 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 I feel differently now than I did 10 or 20 years ago um, with what seems to be an expanded uh, brain power, if you will, or, or ability, that ability to, you know, read certain people um, is enhanced. And, I, and I, I have no physical explanation for that. It just seems to be a, a soul development sort of situation. Um, so I think there's meaning in growing older and dying. Uh, so I think I would not like that universe where we stay 40 years old forever. All right, Mike, I need to switch gears with you because we're, we're already deep into the end of the time here. Now, we kind of touched on it. I said that you're a best-selling author, but I didn't say that you're a best-selling author in submarines or submarine adventures. And your newest book is called Dark Transit. Can you That's tell right. us a little bit about that book? The Dark Transit came out late last year in, in December, and, and it's a... Uh, uh, the first in a in an intended series about a uh, young officer who shows up to a pro- what they call a project submarine, and there's a few project submarines in the U.S. Navy. They don't report to the normal Navy reporting structure. They report to the president, and they do super special, super secret operations that only a few people in the entire government know about. So they tend to be very interesting. So this young officer. Uh, named Anthony Pacino, shows up at this submarine, the USS Vermont, a Virginia class, and he engages in what is one of the most crazy special operations ever devised for the submarine force. And we, we follow him as he sort of grows up in, uh, in that mission. So that was, that was uh, about a year and a half in the making and uh, tremendous fun to write. I had no idea what was going to happen. And I kept going to work to write it to see what would happen next. Would you say that these are kind of like submarine versions of Tom Clancy books? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because I think if you 
if you take a, a reader who likes Tom Clancy and you, you put one of my books in front of him, he, he gets a lot of things that he would like out of Tom Clancy, but he gets a lot more character development and sort of life meaning. And some of the things that we've been talking about here over and above just the knobology and the buttons and, you know, the war, uh, there's some, some very metaphysical things that might be happening in the background. Uh, you know, when, when a character is experiencing death, I think I can describe that better than a techno thriller author could. Uh, and a lot of my readers just feel like they're, they're transported into a real life where they can really feel these things. So I think that has set me apart and it's, it's given me a, a, a very devoted readership and, and hopefully I can, I can put out half a dozen more of these before, before I need to hang up the, uh, the laptop. I've been thinking lately that what I love about Star Wars and The Matrix and Dune is that these stories are not only action, but they're spiritual as well. You know, you've got the Force and Dune, you've got the Spice and Matrix, obviously. Um, do you put any of those aspects into your books? I think that there's, there's some very deep themes there. Um, when I talked about that sort of fatherly, uh, guardian spirit. Uh, sometimes you see that in my books in the form of, say, a senior admiral uh, talking to a submarine captain or to a, a junior officer. That that wisdom that goes beyond just the years, just sort of the soul wisdom. Um, and and there are times where I, I sort of put in my own experience of, of that feeling of being a young soul uh, into a character, which is, you know, in dark transit, that that junior officer who's the main character feels that he, he, he has no confidence and, and uh, you know, he's, he's a heroic spirit, but he just feels inexperienced and young and, and not very confident. And then he goes through the, the character arc of this, the secret mission that almost brings everybody involved to the point of death and perhaps even beyond and back again. And, um, you know, in, in, in doing that, I think you see a lot of that maybe mystical uh, things that, that I brought back with me that I think make some of those, those fictions that you described uh, much more meaningful than just the plot itself. It sounds like you're getting into Campbell's, how he does the, the circle of the hero. You know what I'm speaking of? I, I've, I've seen that graphically before, and it, it sort of depicts a lot of things that I, I think that I do instinctively. Uh, we were talking before about non-playable characters and, and bots. And, and it's just interesting that, you know, I fight against that because, I, you know, you'll have 100 people in a novel and only a dozen of them really have, you know, fully developed characters and souls. And the others tend to be bots. But can you take a paragraph and give a, a bot something that, that gives him personality? And, and, and that can... That separates uh, the professional from a fan fiction writer. Do you interact with the public? For example, if someone wants to write to you and ask you questions, are you open to that? And if so, should they reach you like on your website or, or what? Uh, I tend to do that through uh, Facebook Messenger. Uh, mm -hmm. I do get a lot of uh, comments or you know, I, might, I might post something on, a, on Facebook about, you know, I just finished Chapter 7. And it almost killed me. 
uh, and I'll get comments there. Or people will, will write me on on uh, Facebook Messenger and have questions. And um, actually, you know, a, a long time ago, through my website, I would I would get a lot of emails, and um, sort of in the email era, we, there was a lot of back and forth that seems to be much abbreviated today. If you really think about how uh, our interpersonal communication has changed in 40 years, then now everything now is 140 characters. So a lot of that um, fan contact has, has come down from, you know, two page long emails to uh, two sentences. So it's, you know, it's still fun, but it's a lot shorter. Um, and it, it, so it feels like there's less, but I get a lot of comments that, you know, people have read every book I've ever written and are, are eagerly waiting for the next one. You know, you get that occasional uh, shot in the arm from something like that, that, you know, keeps you writing. Uh, I think that's amazing. You're working on these books. Um, do you have anything else that you're working on that you'd like us to know about? Well, this is, this is a hundred percent of my focus. Um, because I, I want to, I want to get about four or five more books out before, uh, you know, mentally I'm, I'm not really able to do that. So, uh, you know, my, my medical history is a duplicate of my mom's. When my mom was 75, she was sharp as a tack. When she was 80, she didn't even know who I was. So I've got this sort of scheduled out until I'm 75 and then I'm going to just stop and maybe I'll, I'll read some of the things. Um, and, and, and sort of, so that's, that's what I'm working on. I don't have other writing projects now because this is all consuming. Uh, I keep a whiteboard by my, by my desk and every day it changes a little bit, but, you know, I know where I want a scene to go and I know I've got five scenes that are sort of queuing up to be written like planes on a taxiway waiting to take off. Um, so that takes, that takes a hundred percent of me maybe more. Do these stories just come to you or do you have to sit there and think through them and grind them out? Well, I think they come from beyond. I, th I think they're, you know, a lot of writers feel like they're channeling God or, or what have you, and that the, the real writer is, is not they themselves. Um, you know, we've talked about higher self or the complete self. And I, I, I very much think that maybe some of this writing comes from, from outside my, my personality. Um, I think that I enable it and I think that I think about it a lot and I, I contribute ideas to it, but there are a lot, a lot of times where what I'm writing is, is very external to myself. Um, uh, I've seen plot twists that I didn't see coming until the words landed on the page. Uh, mm -hmm. there was one novel, I think it was, uh, Phoenix Sub-Zero, that the bad guys were doing so well that that about 80% through the book, I had to stop. I, I could not figure out how the good guys were going to win. I had no idea. I, I, it's like playing chess against yourself, and I was losing. Um, and the publisher started threatening me, and and I, I had to get that last 20% of the manuscript written in about four days. So I did it without sleep. And I was on the train to New York City to, to deliver the manuscript. And my publisher asked, well, how did it turn out? And I literally told him, I don't know. I'm going to have to read it right along with you. I have no memory of what happened at the end of this book. Wow. And so as, as I read it, it truly felt like I was reading somebody else's work. I mean, it, 
don't get me wrong, it was great. It was fantastic. I mean, uh, and I say that with that with a sense of humility because I'm really not praising myself, I'm praising the work. I don't know where this came from, but it turned out amazing. And it was not me sitting there trying to grunt out a sentence. It just flowed from someplace beyond. It's amazing to hear that from you because I interview people and some people will say they do automatic writing or channeled writing. So to get another viewpoint from an experienced author is, you know, it's fascinating. There's, there's a lot of times where I won't know what's going to happen next and I, I just stop and I wake up in the morning and I have a scene in my head and I have to get it on the page before it evaporates. And I think to myself, you know, I really didn't think of that. That just sort of was like mailed into me. So it, it is very, uh, very bizarre experience writing. It's an unconscious digital download. (laughs) (laughs) As long as the writing's good at the end of the day, I don't care where it came from. All right. Well, if somebody is new to your submarine stories and they want to read all of your books, which book should they start with? Well, I would start with Dark Transit. And uh, my advice is always to read the most recent one I've done because they're all standalone. Okay. You know, very much. You might see a reference to uh, the main character's father, and maybe a story about him comes out that is more, you know, fully the plot of another novel that might get you interested in seeing the backstory. But everything happens now, it's self contained. So, uh, you know, I always tell people, you know, read the one I just wrote. So Dark Transit is my recommendation. At the moment, it's my Gatsby. Before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? If there's a positive message that I would give just about anybody, it's that that life has a meaning that's much deeper than waking up, making breakfast, going to work, eating lunch, finishing work, having dinner, going to the gym, watching TV, and going to bed. Um, There's some very deeply uh, important things that are in this universe that need to be observed and interacted with and learned. And it's uh, so much more than we really think it is. And it's difficult to describe, but I think life is very important. And, uh, and I'm distressed sometimes when people don't see that. Mike, thank you again for being my guest. I appreciate you and I wish you massive success with your books. Thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate being here. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.